Hey, if this is your first time visiting us here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship in our room, or if you're joining us online, we want to say welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning we are going to be concluding Jude's scathing description of apostates. Uh, we have been walking through the book of Jude. We're not done with the letter, but, but this is kind of where he's wrapping up his uh, really aggressive description of those who would lead people away from the truth of God, try and redefine the truth of God, and those who just completely deny it, reject it, or abandon it altogether. Now, Jude opened this letter, if you remember, with a very clear call to fight for the truth, a call to fight and defend what is true in in Scripture because that truth is under attack. That truth has been under attack since the very beginning, and it's under attack today. But by extension, as he calls us to fight for the truth, he's also calling us to fight for the community that supports that truth, that lives that truth. We're called to fight for what this place is about because false teaching can deceive. False teaching can lead people astray from God's truth and ultimately the danger of that is for those that are seeking truth but have not yet found Christ, being led away into deception could lead to judgment and damnation. So the point is it's a big deal, truth is. It's a very big deal. It's worth fighting for. It's worth discerning. It's worth knowing the difference between what is true and what is false because maintaining the truth of what this place is about, what this place stands for, brings true hope, brings true peace, joy, purpose, meaning, but ultimately salvation into people's lives. And, you know, As a church, we want everybody to know that all are welcome here, right? We're not people who want to close the doors, oh, you're not one of us, get away unclean, right? (laughs) The doors are open. We want people to know that the church is here for them and is a place of healing, a place where they can come in and and seek and and seek truth and to know the truth. We We want people to know that. But in the process of being an open and welcoming place for those who are seeking truth, we don't ever want to water down change or alter the biblical scriptural truth of God's word and who he is and what it all means simply for the sake of pleasing people. We don't want to do that any more than a doctor would refuse giving an accurate diagnosis to a patient or prescribe less effective medication simply because, oh, they don't want to hear it. Or simply because like, oh, that's offensive. Don't give me that medication. (laughs) The doctor is still going to prescribe what needs to be prescribed and still speak the truth that needs to be heard. And so, yes, the doors of this place as a church are open to all, and all are welcome here to come and seek the truth and to hear the truth of who God is because, really, we all need spiritual healing, don't we? We're all messed up to one degree or another, and we're all carrying wounds of different kinds. We all need grace. We all need mercy. We all need forgiveness and salvation, and we all need everything that is only found in Jesus Christ. And that's why we gather to study and to learn. Being connected here in this place, participating here, plugging into the family, participating in one another's lives, it's a critical part of our healing. It's a critical part of our growth in in having a healthy spiritual connection to Jesus Christ himself. But sadly, There is another truth that Jude is addressing in his letter here that we have been talking about, and that truth is this, that not everyone who goes to church, not everyone who participates in church, in the church life, or participates in the church family is indeed part of the church. There is a difference. And not everyone who claims Christ has a real, rooted, authentic relationship with him. You know, one of the examples of this we find in Acts chapter 16 when Paul goes to Philippi to bring the gospel. And you remember the story there. He gets there, he starts preaching. He ends up visiting a riverbank where he is uh, introduced to a group of women who are there at the riverbank. And And so he preaches the gospel. And a number of the ladies there, including one named Lydia, um, get saved. They give their life to the Lord. They're baptized. And and really, they go on to, to live a sincere commitment to Jesus Christ. And so a church was planted in Lydia's house and the gathering of the church commenced. It was a wonderful time. 
But there was one girl who is unnamed in the text that we see singing around, hanging around at every single church service, it seems. And it tells us in Acts 16, 17 that she followed Paul and us, and she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. That's great. I'd love for all of you to run around the world and go, Hey, Hosanna, they proclaim the Most High God, right? But verse 18, it says she did this for many days, and Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the Spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out right away. You see, although this unnamed girl in this story was saying something that sounded good, sounded spiritual on the surface, appeared to be uh, truthful, Paul exercised discernment in that moment, and he was able to tell the difference between what was a false profession of faith, a mocking of God, and the opposite, which would be a genuine, authentic worship that would come from a true member of the family of Christ. Every true believer, especially church leaders, we're called to be gatekeepers of the truth in this world, to be able to discern the true from the false. And it's why Jude passionately, aggressively has been pointing out the characteristics of apostates so that we would be able to identify those who are apostate, to identify the false teachings that come from apostates so that we would know the difference between what is true and what is false. And if you remember in the beginning of the letter, he even said, this isn't what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write a nice, encouraging letter to you guys. I wanted to write something that was just like a warm spiritual hug and and we would just celebrate our unity and fellowship. But the Holy Spirit led him to write something different. And he had to write the letter that we have been studying because certain people, he said, had crept into the fellowship by stealth, unnoticed. And those people were in the fellowship still hanging around whose deadly ways And deadly teachings were influencing those genuinely seeking God. So this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 19 in the letter of Jude and looking at three final aspects of apostates, how they speak, how they live, and then really the last one, which I just think is kind of like, you know, uh, ironically fun, (laughs) is that their false example of their life simply proves the truth of God's word, which they're trying to change by their false living. So we'll get into that this morning, but I encourage all of us as we're learning these things to be defenders of the truth. It's been entrusted to us. It's been entrusted to God's children. It's his doctrine. It's his teaching, and we're called to know it. We're not called to just come to church and sit in a pew. We're called to study the word of God, and we do so together here, but we're also called to study the word on our own. And I encourage you to do that, that you would know the truth so that you could live the truth and then be people who passionately share the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. And we are here today to study it, to learn it, to know it, that we would be people who could champion the word of God, the truth of who you are, the truth of how you called us to live, the truth of salvation, the truth of eternity, the truth of all of it, God that we would be people who do live lives glorifying you and bringing glory to your name, and also people who live lives that shine the truth of the gospel and the hope of the gospel and the promise of the gospel to those that don't have it. Lord, that we would be people so full of the love of God that we would be people who would speak truth when necessary, even if it might risk offending someone. But God, we need to be able to identify the difference, especially in the world we live in today, because Lord, quite honestly, with the blessings of technology you've given to mankind, Lord, it's just uh, opened up an opportunity for those who are false to spread false messages even faster and even wider. And so God, we need to be even more diligent to know the difference between what is true and what is false, that we would stand on what is true, leading people to true salvation. God, we love you. We thank you, Lord, and we want to open up this day, Lord, by praising your name and giving thanks to you, God, because you are truth. You are the way, Lord, and you are the one who has given us life. And we want to celebrate that. We want to praise you for that, God. And then we want to dig into what it is you have to teach us today, Lord. So, Lord, bless us. We bless you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With that, guys, we are in Jude, verses 16 through 19 this morning. And in Jude's call to fight that he opened this letter with, as he called us to contend for the faith, he established very clearly that the truth um, 
one of the major truths of Scripture is that God will judge apostasy. It's a major truth. It's a major truth we have to internalize because sometimes we have a tendency to go, oh, that teaching's false, that teaching's wrong, that teaching's not biblical. Um, I've verified it, I've gotten into the word, you know, and, it, and it's off. But you know what, it's, it's no big deal. I'm not gonna say anything. And my friends are listening to it, but no big deal. And it is a big deal. It is a big deal. And God, God very clearly indicates that truth and falsehood is a big deal. And so he calls us to fight for it because those that, that are in apostasy, those that apostatize, those that follow and teach these truths will be judged. It's not going to be okay at the end. God's not going to be like, oh, well, you tried or you had the right intent. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity, who died and rose from the dead, he's either your Lord and Savior or he's not. And that's the harsh truth, a harsh reality, but one of the most loving truths we can share and, 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 and preach. And so all of those who defect or deny or rebel against God's truth about, about everything, especially the concepts of sin and salvation and who Jesus is and what he did and the present and the future, all of it all together um, are collectively um, apostasy when people deny the truths of what scripture teaches in those things. Now, Judas cited three specific examples of apostasy in his letter so far. The first example was Israel in the wilderness and how they kept rebelling against God's truth and promises. The angels in heaven who left their proper domain and did which was um, um, forbidden to them. And then the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, a place that said, you know, we're going to reject God's truth about relationship and sexuality and all that and redefine it according to our own terms. And just say God's okay with it. Now, there were other things, other sins that characterized Sodom and Gomorrah, but the primary thing was a sexual deviancy that took place there. And so those who denied God's promises and God's parameters and God's definitions for life and living and taught others how to do so, these are the ones that Jude has pointed out as examples of apostasy. And so here in verses 16 through 19, he's finishing his rebuke of those who do this, who apostatize against the truth with a final description. And I believe this whole description, this which is of the, the entire description he's given us, including these three verses, it's meant to teach us how to identify them so that we can fight against their falsehoods. That's the point. So verse 16, Jude says, these, are, these people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires, their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. When you study apostasy and apostates and false teachers, you see themes come up over and over and over again. And one of the themes that comes up over and over again is that what comes out of their mouth is garbage. Right? Now, it might sound good on the surface. It might be nice and spiritual and polished with Christianese and stuff, but you have to analyze you have to look a little bit deeper sometimes. You have to look at what they say and like the Bereans go back to scripture and say, is this, is this so? Is this what God says? Because sometimes it could sound good. But he says these people here, and so again, the, the big question is how do you identify an apostate? Apostates within the church aren't walking around with a name tag that says, hello, I'm an apostate. It would be nice if they did, but they don't, right? They don't wear that name tag. And, and to be completely honest, I don't think many who are apostate believe they are apostate because they've been deceived. And so they think the false truth that they're peddling is actually the correct truth. And so it's hard to tell who is and who isn't an apostate because oftentimes they come in the name of God, they quote Bible verses very well, and they do and say a lot that seems legit. But there are always signs. There are always signs if you're paying attention. And that's the call, is a part of the call to fight, is to pay attention. So how they speak is a big sign. You know, earlier in this letter, Jude characterized apostates as defiled. They're defiled. And the idea of defiled means that their morals are in, impure. That concept of morality, right, the idea of morality is simply the, the distinction between good and evil, the distinction between right and wrong. That's, that's the idea of morality, and so these false teachers, these apostates, they're defiled. Their morals are defiled. They are impure in light of that. And in light of our conduct as Christians, God is the one who defines what is right and wrong. God defines right and wrong. Not us, not our feelings, not our culture. God defines right and wrong. He, he always has and always will. And so therefore, our conduct, when it's out of line with his truth, is immoral because it's not moral being defined by God's morality. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, okay, right. We're having that really quiet time again, so, so I'm just like, I, 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 may, I may poke you guys a little bit here. Are you still with me? All right. Um, but this conduct of false teachers, it includes what they say and how they speak. More specifically, contextually, what they verbalize as right and wrong. What they try and profess is this is right and proper behavior, this is right living, this is moral, godly living, and this is not. This is kind of what he's talking about here, and their defilement is evidenced by what comes out of their mouth. Now in Luke chapter six, verse 45, Jesus said something very similar to that concept. He said a good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. But then he says, for his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. So what comes out of the mouth indicates the state of the heart is what's being established. And so if what comes out of the mouth is defiled, if what comes out of the mouth is morally impure, or in the context, morally out of line with God's morality, then it indicates where their heart is. It indicates who they are. It indicates what they're about. So Jude here gives us kind of an x-ray of the heart, analyzing what's coming out of the mouth of the apostates to see their heart. And so he says here, these people are discontented grumblers. That is a very fun phrase in the Greek because if you, if you look at the Greek of discontented and grumblers and you put it together, this is what it says. They're very complainy complainers. <laughs> They're very complainy complainers. Um, I love that, right? So, so let's break it down. Grumblers. A grumbler is an excessive person that, that, that um, is excessively complaining, crying, or whining in a low, indistinct voice. You've heard that. We've all heard that before. We've all probably done that at times, right? <laughs> you know, low grumbling about stuff, but we're complaining, right? This incidentally is the same exact word that in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, um, Israel, when it says that they were grumbling for 40 years in the desert, grumbling against God, it's the same word. The, the Greek here in the New Testament is the same Greek word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This grumbling, and we know what happened to them in the wilderness, right? Jude has already told us, God judged them. He destroyed them, and it says he destroyed those that did not believe earlier in Jude. So an indicator, an indicator that they did not believe God's truth was what came out of their mouth. How they spoke about what God was doing or wasn't doing. How they were complaining about what he was doing. How they grumbled against God's law, against God's ways, against God's love, and against God's leaders. Very, very dangerous thing they were doing. But then you have this word discontented as kind of like a, a description of their grumbling. Now discontented means constantly complaining whereas grumbling was excessively complaining, right? But the difference with discontented is constantly complaining, blaming, and finding fault for their situation. You know what we call that in our modern parlance? Blame shifters. Blame shifters, right? The idea here is that they chose disobedience to God's truth, and then they blamed him for the results of that. That doesn't happen in the world today, does it? <laughs> Let's be real, people. That doesn't happen in our lives much, it happens, it happens, right? Sometimes we choose disobedience to God and then we get mad at God for the result of that disobedience, you know? But something that characterizes apostates is this is the norm of their life. This is the norm of their life. And so it's good to remind ourselves, I think, how serious complaining is to God from time to time because it was so serious to him. It was so serious to him that he immortalized Israel's complaining forever, he immortalized it so that every time the story was told of God delivering them from Egypt, every time the story is told, guess what's also told? And they didn't all make it out of the wilderness because they grumbled for 40 years. He immortalized it. So much so that hundreds of years after the wilderness journey, it's still being brought up by God and his prophets. In Psalms chapter 106, verse 24, the psalmist says, they despised the pleasant land and did not believe his promise. They grumbled in their tents and did not listen to the Lord. So he raised his hand against them with an oath that he would make them fall in the desert. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 5 and going through verse 10, Paul is, is then speaking. And again, this is now hundred more, hundreds more, more years later, right? My brain didn't work on that one. 
But Paul is speaking of Israel in the wilderness as he's writing to the Corinthians, and these are people that were, you know, all supposed to be following God's truth and God's promises, and so Paul says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. That's the example, or the result. He goes, now these things took place as an example for us so that we would not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. Verse eight, let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Verse nine, let us not test Christ as some of them did. Verse 10, and don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. So does God take complaining seriously? He absolutely does. Do you think God takes maybe even a little bit more seriously complaining, grumbling against him, and then living in disobedience and then coming back and blaming him for the result of that grumbling? Absolutely, we see it here in scripture. And I believe he takes it so seriously because our grumbling and complaining against him and his promises and his truth, I believe it's an attack against his sovereignty. What do I mean by that? Well, if you claim to be a follower of God, Christ is my... My, my savior, my lord, my master, and you, you claim to be a, a follower of God, a disciple of his, and you're always grumbling and complaining against his truth, against his ways, against his word, against his will, what you're really saying is that God is terrible at taking care of you. What you're really saying is that God is not great when it comes to taking care of me, so I'm just gonna grumble and complain, right? The reality is, is we are where we are in life according to God's will. God has us where he wants us. Now, we may not understand all the details of what's going on, but we're called to trust him. We're called to have faith in him. We're called to put faith in his promises. But when we're people that are always like, <laughs> what we're saying is, God, I don't think you're doing a good job. We're grumbling against his sovereignty. And God is sovereign. God is holy. God is just. God is right. Who are we to grumble against his will and his ways, right? Right? So apostates, false teachers, those who defect or deny or rebel against God's truth are characterized as people who murmur and complain and grumble against God's truth and then blame God for the results of their disobedience to it. And then they go on to verbalize that amongst the congregation they're a part of. They verbalize that and that causes others to then become dissatisfied with God and others to become dissatisfied with God's church and God's way and God's will and God's truth. It's infectious. And once dissatisfied thoughts are planted in people's minds, well, it's pretty easy to manipulate them. And that's the goal of false teachers, to manipulate, to distort, deceive, and draw away. Now, I think the cure to complaining, personally, is uh, worship, praise, and thanksgiving, right? You know, you can't really be a complaining, grumbling, complaining complainer with praise coming out of your mouth. It's, it's really difficult to do that, you know. That's why I like opening our services with worship and then we close with worship too because it's like, let's just let's praise God, right? Let's just focus on him for a moment. I'm excited about Wednesday, our Thanksgiving service, which is all gonna be about that. Praise and thanksgiving. Just God, you are so great and you are so gracious. And when we put ourselves in that perspective of just God, I trust you and I believe in you and all that, it really cures that complainy, grumbly part of our heart that just wants to say, God doesn't know what he's doing. And so I'm um, looking forward to seeing you guys on Wednesday, right? That's the plug. All right, you're all going to be here, right? Okay, good. All right, so. <laughs> but verse 16, discontented grumblers, and then later on in verse 16, he says their mouths utter arrogant words. So we're still talking about what comes out of their mouths, right? Arrogant words is simply referring to words that are haughty. Um, that's not a word we use much today, but, but they're proud. They're arrogant. They're boastful. But, but they... they the words themselves, it's saying that they mouth these words that, where, um, that indicate they have an exaggerated or an overinflated sense of self-importance. They think they're it. They think they're, they're, they're the number one. They think they got it figured out. They think they're, they're the, the, the most prominent thing on the planet, right? The idea here is, is arrogant words and having haughty and overinflated sense of self-importance. The idea is that they're full of hot air. They're full of hot air. These people float into the room swelled with nothing of substance. And, and one person put it this way. He said, they pompously puff themselves up with an elaborated, sophisticated religious vocabulary that has an external spiritual tone, but is void of truth. Or as Proverbs ten nineteen says, when there are many words, sin is unavoidable, but the one who controls his lips is prudent. 
It's like those overly religious scam emails that I get all the time. You ever gotten those? Right, we get them through our website all the time because we have a public contact form. And so there's just, there's just always coming through and they often sound like this. Benevolent, gracious minister of God's oracles and mysteries. I beseech thee with an abundance of humility and forthright desire to establish fellowship and kinship of ever-growing camaraderie, for I am duly ordained and called as an apostle and faithful servant of the Most High. So da-da-da-da-da. And then 50,000 pages later, what they're really saying is, money please! Take care of me. Give me, give me money. But they lead with this just, just this overinflated description of you and flattery and then this overinflated description of themselves and, and, and that's what leads to the next thing. It says they flatter people for their own advantage, right? They, they tell people what they want to hear in order to influence them and gain from them. They want to give you the impression that they have spiritual insight or spiritual authority, but it's really all about them. It's all really about controlling you and taking from you. Proverbs 29.5, it says, a person who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. The idea is it's a trap, right? That word flatter there in the original language means smooth. They're smooth talkers. And it sounds good and it sounds right, but if you pay attention, you'll see that it's false. So the whole intent of false teachers and those who embrace or deny, um, embrace false teaching, deny the truth, rebel against it, those who are apostate and who apostatize, the whole intent is to butter you up and manipulate you so they can then lay their trip on you to control you. They want you to think the way they think. They want you to be a part of their thing. And this doesn't mean that, that paying a compliment to somebody means you're an apostate, right? <laughs> I'm not saying that. Wow, you're dressed really nice today. Apostate! No, that's, that's not what this is establishing, all right? Um, but there are times when the Holy Spirit helps us discern the insincerity of someone. And so listen to that still small voice and say, okay, let me analyze. Let me, let me look into things, right? So what a person thinks on the inside, you know, their heart then says from their mouth is, is going to spill out in their behavior. And so that first sign of an apostate that Jude points out today is what they say and how they say it when it comes out of their mouth. The second sign of apostate is how, how they live. Look at the very middle of verse 16 there. It says they live according to their desires. In verse 18, he repeats almost the exact same thing, that they're living according to their own ungodly desires. This, the subtly twisted truths, the, the lies and the falsehoods that they want to proclaim and teach. If, you, if you're able to look, you'll eventually see that their talking leads to their living. Their talking points to their living. Whether it's them wanting notoriety, whether it's them wanting control, whether it's them wanting fame, whether it's them wanting your money. You'll see it as you analyze their life. That word living there, living according to, it simply is referring to walking that idea of our lifestyle, right? We use that phrase in the church, you know, when you say, how's your spiritual walk going, right? What, what we're saying when we say that is, how is the conduct of your Christian life going? <laughs> you know, are, are, you, are you doing good? Are, are you struggling, right? You know, how is your spiritual walk? So that idea of walking is this idea of living here. And you could tell whether God's truth or one's own desires are priority and paramount in someone's life by, walk, by watching how they live. You could see it. Is their own desires the thing? Are their own desires the thing that governs them or is it God's desires? You'll see it by how they live. You know, John the Apostle spoke at length about this idea of us having a new nature when we're truly born again, right? In 1 John, we went through that in detail where the idea was when we're truly saved, we're given a brand new nature. God actually imparts his nature into our lives. That's this concept of being born again, being regenerated. And this new nature that then dwells within us desires to please God. It means that we have a desire that we didn't have before to be obedient to God, to live according to his way and his truth and in his word, right? It's this new nature we have. Now, it doesn't mean we don't struggle. It doesn't mean we don't experience temptation. It doesn't mean that we don't even fall and stumble at times. But the norm of our life the thing that is the normal tendency, the, the normal goal, the habit of how we live, our inclination, that which characterizes our life is a desire to obey God. Doesn't mean you do it perfectly, but the norm of who you are is, I wanna obey God. And then when you disobey God, there's that sense of like, oh man, I, I feel bad about that, right? I feel guilty that I disobeyed God. 
but not feeling that at all. Or outright believing that something God clearly says no to is approved by God by, by professing that and living according to that. Um, or as Jude puts it, turning the grace of God into sensuality, as he said earlier in the letter. Using God's grace and God's, grace and God's truth as a license for immorality. It very, very clearly indicates scripturally that despite your verbal profession of faith, you don't know God at all. That's what the Bible paints. And so for us who are called to be defenders of truth, we say, oh, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. It, it's, it's not okay. Because if someone doesn't know God, they're gonna face the judgment of, of God's, God's wrath against sin and ultimately the judgment of hell. And, and my prayer for myself and all of us is that our hearts grasp that reality. Not to be obnoxious, Bible-thumping, <laughs> you know, blowhards, but, just, but people who are like, I care enough to, to say something, to ask questions. I, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned enough with your, with your spiritual destination, uh, destination to ask you, well, but the Bible doesn't really teach that, or say, you know, to, to engage. This phrase, living according to, to, that he uses here, simply means behaving in line with. And so you're either behaving in line with your own desire um, or God's desire. And if you're living in line with your own desire, which means I know God's word says this, but I'm gonna do this anyways, then, then you're living in opposition to God's desire. Now again, the difference between the oops, I stumbled and I fell into sin and the person who's not saved at all, an apost- a full-on apostate, is the person who, who lives against God's desire habitually without regard to God's truth on the matter. Now, having or struggling with an ungodly or immoral desire or temptation or life, it doesn't disqualify you from being in the family of God. I mean, if just having the, the temptation to do wrong disqualified you, we're all done, right? We're all disqualified if that's the case. Um, and falling and stumbling and momentary disobedience, it doesn't disqualify you uh, either, but, but choosing to engage in, in ungodly behavior, or as Jude puts it here, one's own desire, Choosing to say, I'm going to actively engage in that which God says no to. And in order to justify that, I'm going to twist God's truth and change God's truth. So, oh, now I feel better about it. Doing that is very, very, very dangerous. Doing that without shame or any regard to what God says about it is apostasy. It's apostasy. And Jude gives these examples earlier in verses 5 through 7 of those who grumbled and complained against his promises. They chose to live according to their own desire in the wilderness. Those who rebelled against God's boundaries and parameters for living, the angels, they chose to live according to their own desire. And then those who abandoned and redefined God's definitions for sexuality and sexual expression in Sodom and Gomorrah, they chose to live according to their own desire. And Jude calls it apostasy. So verse 19, he says, these people create divisions and are worldly, not having the spirit. You see that, world, world, that word worldly throughout scripture and it simply is, is um, referring to someone who is characterized by the fallen world, right? How they live, how they think, how they behave. It's characterized like, oh, this is how the fall, fallen world lives? That's how you live, right? That's, that's what it kind of means by worldly. But this word also leads to the concepts of, um, the Bible uses the phrase of the natural man, right? Accord, living according to the natural world, according to the, the natural, not the spiritual way of things. This is the idea of worldly here, but the idea of it, if it means to be living unspiritually or not in line with God's truth. And so apostates, they're always about and focused on what the world is focused on. They're ultimately worried about what the world is worried about, the here and now, what feels right, what meets my needs, what satisfies my wants and desires now. And what does Jude say there? They don't have the spirit. They don't have the spirit. They're not led by the spirit. They don't know God. And so they might want to know God. They, they might profess that they know God. But if you dig and analyze a little bit, their continuing pursuit of their own desires instead of God's desire means that they're just thinking and acting like any other person who doesn't know God. And the conclusion that Jude, Jude draws and John in 1 John draws is that they don't know God. So, it begs the question, 
Why would people like this sneak into the church and become participants of church life, right? Why? Why would they want to come hang out in the fellowship of God? Because that's what Jude says. Like, they're among you. They've snuck in. Why? Why would people who, who are like, ah, I don't want to do God's desire. I'm going to live according to my own. Why would they become part of the church life, right? Earlier he said they're participating in your love feasts, right? They're a part of your church. They come. They're a part of the whole thing. Why would they do this? Why would they become part of all of it? Why would people not driven by pleasing God but their own ungodly desires, ungodly desires stay in the fellowship? Well, I think it's because they want religious approval for their sinful deeds. They want religious approval. They want to feel the safety of salvation. They want to feel the safety of, oh, God's going to let me into heaven while justifying their sinful disobedience. And so they feel better by saying, oh, I go to church. Oh, I, I, I'm a believer. Yeah, I love God. I, I'm, I'm going to heaven. But it's never real. It's never truly authentic because they continue to live however they want. Disregarding God's truth when it's inconvenient to their lifestyle. But then feeling a sense of religious approval because, well, after all, I participate in the church. And it's a deception. It's a deception, and it's a very dangerous deception. Partly because of what he says here, their, their participation in the church life, it creates divisions, it says there in verse 19. It creates divisions instead of promoting unity in the body of Christ, right? We're supposed to promote unity as the body. We're supposed to serve one another and love one another and, and be taking care of one another and praying for one another, right? There's supposed to be this unity that characterizes the body of Christ, but instead, they create divisions. And it's partly because of how they verbalize. Oh, you know what? I know the Bible's clear about living this particular lifestyle is wrong, but you know what? God is a God of love, right? And then they cause someone to go, you know what? That sounds right. Yeah. And then someone else goes, no, that's wrong. Oh, shun that person, right? Divisions. Divisions in the body of Christ. And they end up dividing the church over issues of current cultural norm that are contrary to the truth of God's word. And therefore, we have to be careful about those among us Jude is talking about. You know, at one time, the, the Chinese um, wanted to have a sense of security in their nation because they were being invaded all the time. And so they thought, you know, if we build a big wall, that'll be too tall to climb, too thick to break down, too long to go around, we'll be safe. And they built this thing we all know as the Great Wall of China, which is actually a series of different wall sections that have been built and rebuilt and expanded multiple times over the centuries. But the Great Wall of China's purpose is considered a failure by many, largely because a man known as Genghis Khan and his Mongol army breached the wall many, many times in his conquests of China. But what's interesting is if you study it a little bit, Genghis Khan didn't primarily breach the wall by going over it or around it or breaking it down. Guess how they breached the wall? They bribed the gatekeepers. Remember, this letter Jude is written to the church family. It's written to us, the believers, those that are in God's family, and it's heavy, difficult stuff. And it's written to warn the church to watch out for apostates among them. But there is a warning in this letter to all of us, every person who claims the name of Christ. It says, God is my Lord and Savior. We should always be on guard for our own lives, yes. We should always be asking ourselves, are we living in obedience to God's word? Am I living according to my own desires or am I living according to God's desires? You know, because God said I desire obedience, not sacrifice. He wants obedience. So often we say, you know, I'm going to justify this sinful behavior in my life because, well, after all, I went to church. I sacrificed my Sunday morning, God, so you're going to turn a blind eye to my behavior, right? God says, I want obedience, not sacrifice. But we also have to be on guard to, to 
on guard to guard the gate of truth, right? So we don't allow that which isn't true to infiltrate the fellowship, to infiltrate, um, uh, uh, to bring in negative influence in. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that we're all going to become like these suspicious people now pointing the finger at everybody in the church, right? You know, you complimented me, you apostate. We're, we're, not, we're not going there, right? The idea is, is just be willing to have a conversation when somebody goes, oh, hey, I watched this YouTube video and, and, and they said X, Y, Z. And you're like, wait a second, that doesn't sound right with the Bible. Be willing to have that conversation. Be willing to guard the gate. Be willing to say, hey, can we talk about that? You know, be willing to, to bring up things when someone's like, yeah, I'm, this is how I'm living and I'm living this lifestyle, but, but, but you're professing Christ and that's contrary to, to Christ's word. Can we have a conversation about that? Because I love you, I care about you, right? Guard the gate of truth. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, as, as they had been dealing with false, uh, false apostate teachers in their fellowships, he said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse three. He goes, but I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit, which you had not received, or a different gospel, which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. And then later on in chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians verse five, he says to this fellowship that he's writing to, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. A very serious call to every believer, myself included, right? That word test there, incidentally, guess what it means? To determine your nature. To determine your nature. Is the norm of my life a desire to obey God? Is my nature now to want to follow God's truth and God's will and God's way? Is, is, is that my nature? Is that my intent? And then he says, examine yourselves, and that just simply means to critically look at to determine genuineness. Is my profession of faith genuine, right? I say I, I, I believe in Christ, I say it, but how am I living? Am I living in obedience to him? Do I have a changed nature? Do I regularly, habitually put, put my own desires before God's will? Is, is that what characterizes my life? When it comes to the things that I know God says no to, that I want to say yes to, do I follow God's way anyways? Do I follow God's truth anyways? Or do I find a way to justify my actions somehow? Because claiming to know God and living as if he doesn't exist, very dangerous way to live. Very dangerous way to live. And so the third aspect of an apostate that Jude, I believe, points out here is just the irony that they are living examples that God's truth is true. <laughs> they are living examples, right? Watch this. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude is starting the turn now. He kind of closes this letter on an encouraging note, right? But we know who the apostles were, you know, Peter, James, and John, those that traveled with Jesus. The Bible tells us that Paul was an apostle born out of due time, right? So we know who these people were. And these guys wrote what we have is the New Testament, right? And he goes, remember what they predicted. Verse 18, they told you in the end time, there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. Now imagine the, the being at the day of Pentecost, right? Holy Spirit falls upon people, preaching goes, church is born, thousands are being saved, right? It's just this like whole brand new vibrant thing. God is moving. They're meeting daily in the temple. They're gathering from home to home. It tells us that they're, they were excitedly devoted to the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. I mean, just this awesome, vibrant, powerful time in the early church. And as the book of Acts continues and church history rolls on, you have the early church, or what's known as the apostolic church, is just evangelizing all over the world, preaching the gospel, planting churches everywhere, people getting saved, lives changed, just awesome vibrancy. The mightiest world power of the time, Rome, was massively impacted by this move of God in the hearts of people as his truth went out. And in those early days, God spoke to the apostles, right? That's what we have in the New Testament as it's the inspired word of God. We have record that he also spoke to some of them and let them see into the future. That's the book of Revelation we're getting into next. And then other places where he showed Paul the future. And, and, and we have these wonderful writings and a lot of what the apostles saw was wonderful and amazing, right? They saw the coming of Christ. 
They saw the rapture of the church. They saw the new heavens and the new earth and this eternal kingdom and joy. Oh my gosh, this is so awesome. What's gonna happen in the future? But they also saw something that terrified them. Something that I believe to them was horrifically frightening. They saw that many in the church in the end times would defect from the truth. Can you imagine as they were in the midst of this just expanding church and lives being changed constantly? Wait a second, there's a time coming where many are going to defect from the truth of God? They predicted that many in the church would abandon the gospel. Jesus spoke about this. Paul spoke about it. Peter and John spoke about it. As a, fact, as a matter of fact, I've mentioned in a previous study that every single book in the New Testament except Philemon speaks of apostasy in the end times. Every single book. It must have been one of the greatest prophetic shocks to the apostles to see that. And then you go, well, how quickly? How soon until it started happening? Well, about 20 to 25 years after this letter of Jude was written, John was given the revelation, right? The revelation that we have is around 95 to 100 AD, depending on how you uh, date it. But in that letter, in chapters two and three, you have the seven letters to the seven churches. Five of those seven churches were already fulfilling the predictions made by the apostles that the church would fall away from the truth. So fast. Didn't take long, did it? Jude says, remember, dear friends, we've been told, we've always been told that it would be this way. And you go, well, why would the Holy Spirit tell them that? Right? Why not just the good stuff? Just tell us all the good stuff, Lord. Why do, why do we gotta deal with this heavy stuff? It's so that when it happened, we wouldn't be surprised. It's so that when it happened, we'd be ready to respond. So that when it happened, we would be ready to step into the fight for truth. Because nothing that is happening today hasn't already happened in the Old Testament, hasn't already happened with Sodom, hasn't already happened in heaven, hasn't already happened throughout the world with the angels, with the children of Israel in the wilderness. God's plan hasn't gone terribly wrong. When we look at the world today and we see all the false teaching out there, it's like, oh no, God's plan is off the rails. That's why we have to fight. No, it's not that. It's going exactly how God said it would go. And the battle is for the souls of people. The battle is for the eternal salvation of those who don't know Jesus Christ. And that is why we are called to fight for truth because we are people who have been marked by the truth. We are people who have been changed by the truth. We have received the truth and we know it. And it's not to be hoarded within us, it's not to be only held within our hearts and never spoken of, but it's to be a light that shines from the top of the hill. To have the furthest reach it possibly can. And for some of us it means we serve this way or give this way or get involved in this way, and others it's different. But we're all called to be in the battle and to fight for truth. So what are we to walk away with this study with, real quick, right? Because that's just kind of like, okay, great, apostates are bad, we get it. What are we to walk away with? Well, you know, like I said a few times in this study, there, there's a lot of bad teaching in the world today. And I, and I say that with humility, you know, because lest someone go, oh, Nathan, you think you're the perfect teacher? No, I'm not. But I labor to stay true to the truth. And, and that's what we should all do as believers. But the first thing I want us to walk away with is, is to investigate others, right? To investigate, specifically leaders and teachers, those who claim to stand in the position of, of spiritual authority to be speaking for God, um, investigate them. You know, in our world today, just because you have a lot of followers or a high subscriber count does not automatically mean what you say is true. Sometimes people can think that way in our world today. Oh, you got millions of subscribers. You must be right on. Not necessarily. Now, it doesn't mean the opposite either. Oh, you have a lot of subscribers. You must be an apostate. No, it doesn't mean that either. But investigate. Investigate. Be like the Bereans, right? Look at their character. Listen to what they're saying. Listen to what they're teaching. Is it biblical? Is it biblical? Look at the effect that their teaching has on others. The things they teach. How do people live then according to what they're taught? 
right? That's something that we could look at. What kind of lives are, are the people listening to their teaching living? Are they living lives of obedience with, with grace and mercy, you know, suffused throughout their lives? Or are they living lives of justified ungodliness? Unbiblical contact, conduct, I mean. And, and, and really do all of this to, to, to anybody that would stand as a representative of God, myself included. The false are among the flock at large, according to Jude. And don't be fooled by those in sheep costumes. Second thing is to evaluate yourself. You know, I think it's important to do that. It's not that we live lives of questioning our salvation. You know, am I saved today? Am I saved today? But it is a good question to ask. Am I saved? Do I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Do I have a new nature given to me by God? Has my heart been changed? Do I have a nature that desires to obey God, to please him, to do his will? Is that, is that the norm in my life? Is that what characterizes me? Not that you don't stumble, not that you don't mess up, not that you don't give in from time to time, but is my general disposition one to, to obey God? Do I have a nature that will yield and lay down and walk away from personal wants and my own desires that contradict the truth of God's word, regardless of how I feel about it? Do you feel bad when you disobey God? Right? We know there's no condemnation. But the Holy Spirit is with us to be like, hey, that wasn't right. And we go, oh, man, that doesn't feel good. That wasn't right. God, forgive me. Do you feel that or, or do you not really care when you live in contrary to God's law? And the question is to ask yourself, you know, is, is my profession of faith genuine, authentic, and real? Have you turned your whole life over to him, not just with words, but with your heart and your soul and your conduct and your everything? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and master? Now, if not, good news you could receive him right now. You could repent of your sin right now and believe in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did by dying on the cross for your sins. Maybe you've professed faith at one point. You know, I went forward in an altar call once. But maybe God is revealing to you that, you know, you, you, you've apostatized. <laughs> you've defected from the truth. You've rebelled against the truth. You're trying to do things according to your own desires and, and then twist the truth to fit. And the idea is, is you, you never really knew him at first. You never really yielded all of you to him. And maybe God is speaking to you today that's like, look, if you don't receive me for real today, if you don't know me for real today and you were to die today, you would die without me. You would face the judgment alone. If there's anything positive regarding apostasy is that you can repent of it. You can turn from apostasy and back to Christ. You can come to him today. So I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that in a moment if you're in this room or if you're watching this online. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that Jude wrote this letter. We thank you, God, that you gave Jude the courage to write this letter because it is quite in our faces. But we thank you, God, that as Jude was led by the Holy Spirit, he was obedient to that call and wrote a letter with such heavy language in it. But Lord, we know that you led him to do that to warn us, to call us to attention and so, God, you have our attention today. For those, Lord, who have abandoned you, defected from your truth, rebelled against it, those who may have once made a profession of faith at some point, but, but they know it wasn't real. There was never any real change in their life. And, Lord, for those in this room today that have never made a profession of faith of any kind, have never come into you, God, but they have realized today that they're living contrary to your truth and you are calling them to you. God, you are saying to them today, come home. You are saying to them, I love you, I forgive you. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're in this room this morning and God is speaking to you, maybe you've never come to Christ, but you know you need him. You need the forgiveness for your sins because judgment against sin is coming. But God said, I loved you so much that I paid your price that you would be safe from that judgment and forgiven of all of your wrongdoing. If that's you in this room this morning,
or if you're in this room and, and maybe you've made a profession of, of faith at one point, but God is speaking to you and revealing to you and you know that you never really truly had a change of heart. You were never truly born again. And you feel God calling you to him for real today. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want you where you're seated to raise your hand and say, yeah, I want to receive Jesus Christ this morning. I need him in my life. Or I need to come back to him today because I've strayed. If you're online and watching, obviously I can't see you, but let us know in chat that you want to receive Christ today. Because God is calling all of those who have strayed back to his truth. And he is willing right now with open arms to say, I welcome you back, I welcome you home, I forgive you of all your wrongdoing. Let me change your life. And if you want to receive that today, just raise your hand where I could see it. Let me pray with you. God bless you in the front. Anybody else? God bless you in the back. God is speaking to you this morning about your need to give your life to him and receive the forgiveness he has for you. Anybody else in this room? Just raise your hand. I see you in the back as well. Anybody else? God wants to save your soul today. God wants to give you that new nature today. Anybody else before we pray? I see you in the back. God bless you, brother. Father God, we pray for those in our room and those maybe even watching online, Lord, that have realized their need to repent of their sin. They've realized their need to receive you. They've realized their need to come to you, God, to receive a completely changed heart, a new nature. God, maybe this is the first time they're coming to you. Maybe, God, they've made a profession of faith in the past, but they realize and you've revealed to them that it wasn't true. But now, God, they have called out to you. And now, God, they are coming to you in truth and in faith to receive the forgiveness and the salvation you offer them. Lord, we thank you, God, for that. And we trust and know and believe according to your word, your truth, that as they are sincerely giving their life to you today, you are sincerely and truly forgiving them and giving them the promise of heaven and the hope that comes with that. So for those of you that raised your hand and those of you online, I want you to pray a prayer with me. There's no specific uh, words that need to be said or whatnot. This is just a conversation you're gonna have with God to honestly admit who you are, what you've done, and to ask him to forgive you and come into your life. And so just pray with me. You can pray out loud or quietly. Say, Lord God, Jesus Christ, I believe you today. You have revealed to me that I don't know you, but I want to know you. You have revealed to me today the false life I was living, but God, I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I ask you to cleanse me of all wickedness I ask you to come into my life and to change my heart. I ask you to give me a new nature that I would live in obedience to you. Help me to glorify your name. Help me to stand for truth. Help me to live for you. I trust you. I believe you. I give my life to you. Thank you for loving me so much that you would die for my sins on the cross. Thank you for loving me so much that you would welcome me into your family. Thank you for loving me so much that I could come back to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, God bless you guys. If you gave your life to the Lord today here in our room for the first time, or if this is just the first time of you saying, God, I'm truly, genuinely yielding my life to you, we want to help you and encourage you in this relationship that you're entering into. We have up here in the front rows and out in the foyer on the table what's called a new believers packet. And we would like to give this to you as a gift just to help you on this journey. And it's just full of resources to, to help point you at truth. Truth in worship, truth in the word, truth in study. Because God is going to bless and move in your life as you keep yourself pointed at him.
If you're online and you gave your uh, life to the Lord today, please let us know in chat. We will get connected with you to get you one of our new believers packets as well. But for the rest of us, God is calling us to fight. Been saying it for weeks now. It's time to step into it if you haven't been. If you have been fighting, I am so glad that you have a place here to come to, to rearm and regroup and, and resupply and rest just a bit before we go back out into the fight because it is the truth of God that will always rejuvenate us, will always empower us and enable us. It is the spirit of God living within us to bring his truth out to a world that desperately needs it and always be willing and ready to, to share that truth in love, in gentleness, in kindness. And guess what, guys? We happen to have a couple holidays coming up where family tends to gather together that you might not see on a regular basis. I encourage you to pray for the opportunity to have a civil, loving conversation with somebody about the truth of God's word, that those who don't know him would be able to come to know him as well. Amen? God bless you guys.